And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in there where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said, Talitha Kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. The word of the Lord. Shall we pray? Good and sovereign God, we come to you today. Father, we adore you because you are sovereign over heaven and earth. Your glory fills the temple. The cherubim day and night cry out with ceaseless praise, holy, holy, holy. Father, like Isaiah, we confess that we are an unholy people. And the more that we see the holiness of God, His perfect goodness, that all He does is right and pure, we are overwhelmed that we are men and women of unclean lips and we dwell in a people of unclean lips. You are our only hope and we are unworthy to come into Your presence. But Father, though you are a God who is high and lifted up, you are a God who has drawn near. Because you are a God who is merciful and gracious. And Father, you have sent your Son, your only begotten Son, who the Word became flesh, who dwelt among us, who taught us of the kingdom, 
who loved the Lord with all his heart and soul and mind and loved his neighbor as himself, who was the good shepherd who laid his life down for the sheep to redeem us from the just judgment of our sin, who took the punishment for our sin that we deserve that we may receive the honor and the righteousness of the Son. He suffered in silence alone that we may hear the voice of the Father say, Come into my kingdom. He drank the bitter cup of wrath that we may drink the sweet cup of grace. Father, we thank you. And Father, we come to you this morning as a people who are needy, who are broken, and who are stand before you in right relationship by Christ, but we realize that things are not the way they are supposed to be in our bodies, in our relationships, in our government, in our world is broken by sin, from the least of us to the greatest of us. Father, this morning we lift up our sisters, Faith and Jane and Jenny. Lord, they need your healing touch. Father, I pray that you would restore them and strengthen them. Father, I pray and I lift up those this morning who are struggling with the loss of a loved one. Father, they feel the ache in their hearts of people who have enjoyed the good gifts of husbands and wives and loved ones and children. And they feel that ache. And I pray, Father, for those things that you have taken, that you would fill them with yourself to overflowing with a peace that passes all understanding. Father, I pray for those this morning who are struggling with finances, making ends meet. And Father, I pray that you would provide. Father, Lord, we entrust our lives to you, our health to you, our worries to you, our jobs to you. We rejoice with those this morning who rejoice and we weep with those who weep. Father, we thank you that all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us so. And we know that we belong to Jesus. We are not our own, but we are bought with a price. Therefore, we glorify God in our bodies every day that we may be satisfied and you may be glorified in us. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. This morning, as we continue in the book of Mark, we will see two people that couldn't be any more opposite that day of, of one another as they meet Jesus that day on the Sea of Galilee. The first person we'll see was a well-respected, honorable, honorable man named Jairus. He was a pillar of society. He was in charge of the, of the synagogue, and he was loved and respected by the people. The second person, we have a nameless to us, unclean woman who was an outcast of society. 
And yet, despite these two polar opposites, radically different lives, they had two things in common. Not only with themselves and two things in common with all of us this morning, they were in desperate situation and they knew that Jesus was their only hope. As Mark begins to bring chapter 5 to a close, he begins to weave another one of his Markan sandwiches. And you're like, what is that, a pastrami on rye or something? No, it's two stories um, that are shoved together to teach one lesson. The first story is cut in half, half like a piece of bread, and the second story is the meat put in the middle. That middle story interprets the outside story and teaches us the lesson this morning. And so this middle story uh, is unlocking the truth of what genuine faith is. And at first you might think it's the pillar of society that's the, the mark of what genuine faith is, but it's actually the outcast, the forgotten, the unclean woman who we don't know her name, but Jesus knows her name. And God knows her name today. Mark is teaching us an incredible model of genuine faith that as we lean over the shoulders of Mark's readers, we learn this morning this, that genuine faith in Jesus transforms fear and despair into hope and salvation. Faith in Jesus transforms fear and despair into hope and salvation. This morning, what I want to do is I want to give you my big idea, and that's it there for you note-takers. It's going away in a moment if this will ever... There it goes. It'll be back. But what I want to do is I want to tell you the story first, make some editorial comments, and then I want to give you the three implications, three things of many that we learn about, about genuine faith. If you're not already there, turn to Mark chapter 5. Uh, we will be, uh, it's on page 840 of your pew Bible. If you don't have a pew Bible, but you're not exactly sure where Mark is, you can go to the, the, the glossary in the front. Uh, old, the Bible's split in uh, two Testaments, Old and New. Mark is the second book of the, of the New Testament, so you can slide over and see what page it's on. Uh, go over a few pages to the right, and you'll find Mark chapter 5. Just to give you, to uh, uh, catch up, to give you the context of what's going on in this chapter, is the more Jesus is coming and working, the more people are beginning to understand who he is and his identity. Because really at this point in Mark, and not until the end, after the resurrection, will people really understand who Jesus really is. The only people who know the true identity, fully God and fully man, of, of Jesus is him, Jesus, and the demons. And the demons quake at his feet. And the more that people realize the power of God, the more they, um, their reactions to Jesus are more uh, uh, stronger. You see, the crowd saw the power of Jesus and they worked more and more just so they could get closer to Jesus and touch it so they could use the power of Jesus to change their lives. Well, as Jesus is becoming more powerful and more influential and people are, are, are saying, who is this? And we've never seen anything like this before. The religious leaders who have the stronghold on power at this point, their uh, reaction to Jesus is getting stronger and more negative. And actually the point is they're trying to go and, and refute him on doctrine 
when he, he works them over, they leave and then plot his death. You see, they won't let him heal a man on the Sabbath, but they have no problem plotting Jesus' death on the Sabbath. And then you see, as Jesus is becoming more and more revealing this, his, who he was, and the disciples are starting to catch on, they're re realizing as they're sitting in the boat, and at one moment the waves are crashing against the boat, and these seasoned fishermen are so scared, instantaneously there's calm, and rather than rejoicing, what does it say? They were fearful. So as Jesus' power is becoming, being revealed more and more, those who are genuine disciples of Jesus, their fear and reverent fear is beginning to grow stronger as well. And we begin to see this as we go. So Jesus' power up to this point is greater than any threats that shatters the human existence worries, fears, despairs, and as we will see this morning, Jesus's power is even greater than death itself. Notice verse 21, and Jesus had crossed to the other side of the, uh, the boat to the other side. Remember, he left um, the uh, garrisons and demoniac. A great crowd gathered about him and was beside the sea. Then came out the rulers of, of the synagogue, Jairus by name. See, J Jairus was a man of honor and influence. He was the ruler of the synagogue, and he would have been responsible for overseeing the worship and supervising and maintaining the building. He was the man that people came to and looked to for answers and directions. Yet there was a crisis in Jairus' life, and now he had no answers and he had no directions. He was a desperate father who his little girl, 12 years old, was desperately sick. He had no answers. He held her little body in his arms that once danced and sang that little body was now nearly lifeless. Her whimsical voice that sang and laughed was, may have been reduced to a faint whisper. Her eyes that once danced at wonder were now distant and empty. She didn't have much time, and every second mattered. And when every second mattered, Jairus would do anything to save his daughter's life, and where did he go? He went to Jesus. He went to find Jesus. Because the scuttlebuck in, the, in the, city, the city would have been, they would have heard the stories about Peter's mother-in-law. And if Jesus could rebuke a fever, he would certainly be able to save his little girl. And if Jesus could raise a paralytic, he could make his little girl dance and sing again. And if Jesus could restore a withered hand, he could restore the joy of her laughter to his home again. Therefore, he knew he had to do one thing. He knew he had to find Jesus because every second mattered. Notice the latter half of verse 22. And seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and he implored Jesus earnestly, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. 
Jairus laid aside the dignity of his position. He ignored the expected decorum of a man of his standing in society, and he fell. He threw himself at the feet of Jesus, and you can almost hear the desperation in his voice. Help her, Jesus. My little girl is sick. Help my little girl. And notice the words in verse 24 that you can almost pass over as a transition, but is sweet, rich with grace. And Jesus went with him. And Jesus went with him. Jairus had faith in Jesus, and Jesus went with him. His life was spinning out of control, and he didn't have any answers, but he knew who did, and he threw himself at the feet of Jesus. I pray, Ocean Park, that you would be like Jairus this morning. When your answers are not sufficient, when you don't know what to do, when you realize that you have no control, go to Jesus. He knows what to do. He has the answers. His answers are sufficient. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said this. He said, Faith ensures the aid of Jesus without delay. And if you and I can trust him, he will go with us. Friends, can you rely on Jesus? Then it shall be written of you also. And Jesus went with him. He, Jairus, or Jesus, will go with all who come to him, not to manipulate his power, not to control his power or keep his power in check, but to come to Jesus in faith, saying, I am desperate, I am fearful, I need you. He will go with you. Notice verse 24, and a great crowd followed him and Jesus and Jairus as they're heading back to the house, and they thronged about him. We use the analogy of, of uh, uh, these great crowds when a celebrity comes or goes, or in a great trial when, that, when the defendant is coming to the building and the media is overwhelming them. This is the throng that's following Jesus. This is not a couple people just walking down the street in anonymity. This is a throng of people, and you're not walking. Jairus wants to run, but the crowd won't let them. And there was a woman, our second story, the meat of the Mark and Sandwich. There was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had. And notice these heavy, heavy words, and she was no better, but she grew worse. Every second mattered to Jairus. As they made their way to the home, as they walked to, the they walked to his house, the crowd began to overwhelm Jesus. And the touch of a desperate woman stopped Jesus in his tracks. See, Mark tells us for the past 12 years, this woman has been suffering from some sort of feminine hemorrhage that had bankrupt her financially and emotionally and physically and spirit, spiritually and relationally. And like Jairus, she needed to get to Jesus. Yet rather like the man of honor and well-known and dignity who came in the face of Jesus and fell down, she couldn't do that. She came from behind. She silently slipped into the crowd anonymously and namelessly 
her fear that they would know her and find her out, her problem, and she'd come just to touch his garment. If she just touched his garment, she could leave and be made whole and go home and resume life that she wanted, that she longed for. But the question is, why couldn't she just simply go from the front like Jairus? She was unclean. Now, I have to do a little background understanding here. The Old Testament law strictly forbade in a person in a state of impurity to participate in worship or society. Now, impure states were not bad things. They weren't sinful things. It's just the holiness of God is so reverent and holy that you couldn't go into his presence and worship in an impure state. An impure state is anything really that could be associated with death and dying and decay. Skin diseases, like we see the leper earlier, bleeding of, of any t- bodily discharge, and those who had recently come in contact with a dead body, they would be considered ritually impure and not able to participate in worship. But what was so difficult, especially for this woman, is that anybody that came and touched somebody who was ritually impure, they themselves for a period of time would be ritually impure. So you can imagine this woman who is is bleeding for 12 years, in 12 years of the state of impurity, no one would touch her at risk that they themselves would not be able to worship. It doesn't tell us her marital status, but no man at this time would want to marry a woman that was impure like this, and so her, her security from a husband at the time and her hope of children would not be an, available as well. And it tells us, the text tells us, she suffered under many physicians. She had spent everything she had at just the, the hope that they would be able to heal her. And if you read the background, I don't have the time to talk about it, they would make them do humiliating, silly, superstitious things that would not help them. And I imagine the the despair of this woman, the fear of this woman, that if things keep going like this, I will be alone and I will be dead. And that way she saw Jesus and she had to touch him because she knew that Jesus could heal her. For 12 years, this hopeless woman suffered. It's no, um, it's no consequence that she suffered 12 years. And how old was J. Iris' daughter? 12 years old. The significance of this. 12 years she had been, the physicians had drained her of her money and her hope. 12 years she'd been untouchable, a social outcast. 12 years suffering her life as it slowly drained from her body. She was utterly hopeless. She had no answers. She didn't know what to do until that fateful day when the word came through her town and she heard the name of Jesus. In verse 27, she heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garments. For she was thinking, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And that Greek word is the same word, sozo, which means saved. I will be saved from my impurity, saved from my guilt, saved from my shame, saved from my loneliness. I will be made whole. 
It was the grace of God that the rumors in the city had gotten to her, had found her in her miserable plight, and and they were almost too fantastic to believe. A man who his touch and his word could cleanse lepers, could rebuke fevers, could raise paralytics, heal diseases, who could calm the wind and the waves. Only God could do that. And that's what the disciples kept saying. The wind and the waves obey him. And who could cast out an army of demons? Surely, if this is true, this man, can, can, he can heal me. This hopeless woman had genuine faith. It was rudimentary, it was basic, and it caused her to rise up from her hopelessness, her despair, her fear, and where did she go? She went to Jesus. This fledgling faith moved her to slip quietly and stealthily through the crowd in order to touch the hem of Jesus. And notice verse 29, immediately... The word that Mark uses over and over again, immediately the wind and the waves, immediately the paralytic route, immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body she was um, healed from her disease. She was whole, she was well, she was saved. That cure that had eluded her for over a decade had finally been realized. Her plan had worked better than she could ever imagine until... Jesus suddenly stopped. She hadn't accounted for this. What is going on? Notice verse 30. Jesus perceiving to himself the power had gone out for him immediately turned in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? Now, the disciples, who were sort of the wingmen or whatever, they, they, were, the, they were trying to move in the crowds and holding the crowds back. They're like, Jesus. You can almost hear the sarcasm in their voice. Jesus, everyone is touching you. Why are you saying who's touching you? This is, come on, everyone is. It was like when the Beatles would come into the building or Elvis would exit the building, all the throngs of young ladies would scream and shout. When, and, and you have this where everyone is touching you. Think of the State of the Union when the president enters and leaves. What happens? Everybody, these uh, well-refined statesmen and women crowd the, uh, the, the, the aisles so they can shake the hands of the presidents. This is what's happening. And then the disciples are like, come on. Everyone is touching you. Many people... Yet in the midst of the chaos, there one anonymous woman touches Jesus, not like everyone else. How does she do it? She touches Jesus with faith. Many people follow Jesus. Many people have a deep sense of need and, and, and they, uh, a curiosity and religious duty and they come to Jesus as some sort of a cosmic butler or uh, cosmic genie, but they derive no benefit from him. J.C. Ryle said it this way, one and only one followed under deep sense of need and our Savior's power to relieve her and that one received a mighty blessing. Verse 31, but the woman, knowing that what had happened to her, 
came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Again, when you see Jesus for who he is, fear and trembling is the same word that describes the attitude of the disciples in the boat after the the storm had been uh, calmed. It was the same word that describes the town people when they saw the the, uh, the demon-possessed man sitting in his right mind with clothes on They were fearful and they begged Jesus to leave. Now this woman is healed and made whole and Jesus looks and said, who touched me? Knowing full well who touched him. Who touched me? And in fear and trembling, she fell at the foot of Jesus and told him everything. She didn't scream and shout for joy. She didn't run and hug Jesus. She didn't shout hallelujah. She fell down before Jesus with fear and trembling. She realized that that very moment she had grossly underestimated who Jesus was. He was far beyond what she could ever imagine that he is. His power was not simply an unbridled force, but he wielded it with precision and control, and now that power was seeking her. I can imagine for a moment she may have hesitated or thought, would he scold her for violating Jewish law when she was in a state of uncleanliness and came and touched all these people to get to Jesus? Would um, would, Would he be angry that she stole some of his power without his consent? Would he humiliate her and expose her shame that she had been trying unsuccessfully to hide for so long? Notice verse 34, and Jesus said to her, sweetly and compassionately, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Be healed of your disease. I remember, I wonder how long it had been when somebody had called her daughter. How long it had been since someone hadn't looked at her with contempt or self-righteousness, how long it had been since somebody had looked at her with compassion and tenderness. She had been broken and hopeless for so long, probably longer than she could remember what it was like to be whole until Jesus spoke to her until Jesus made her toll, until Jesus literally saved her from fear and despair and from hopelessness and shame and rejection. He didn't simply chase away her problem, stop. He gave her peace. Though this is written in Greek, it it expresses the Old Testament understanding of the word shalom. Shalom is wholeness, well-being, security, friendship, belonging, salvation. She had finally found peace within Jesus. Her faith had restored her because her faith was in Jesus. Jesus loved her too much to allow her to slip back into anonymity. He was not Uh, He was not happy to simply dispense a miracle and send her on her lay. He was compassionate and to encounter her. Why? Though her faith was genuine, it was uninformed and presumptuous and a bit superstitious, but it was real. And that wasn't the only reason that Jesus looked for the one who had touched him. 
Jairus needed to see this woman's faith because he was about to need it. For at that moment that the woman was being made whole, Jairus' life was being shattered to pieces. Notice verse 35. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, Your daughter is dead. Why, why trouble the teacher anymore? Your daughter is dead. Four words that could nearly snuff out his smoldering hope. I wonder if at that moment, Jairus resented the woman and resented the crowd that stopped Jesus when every moment counted. I wonder if he thought, if only these people hadn't slowed down, my sweet little girl would still be alive. All Jairus knew was that his little girl was dead and that Jesus didn't make it there on time. You can almost hear the resignation in the words of the servants. Why, why trouble the teacher anymore? They believed that little girl's death was too great for, for Jesus, too great for this miracle worker, though amazing that he was. It was too much. Yet the delay was not just to heal the woman, but to teach Jairus the nature of faith. Now notice, as Jesus has just declared this woman whole, at the same moment, virtually verse 36, he, he overhears this and he says, Do not fear. Only believe. Do not fear. Only believe. Jairus came to heal his daughter, but now Jesus was asking him to trust him for a resurrection. That was way beyond the, the understanding of Jairus. Jesus refused to allow Jairus to stay in his despair. Like the bleeding woman, Jesus called Jairus to, to faith in the face of utter hopelessness that he may find the grace of Jesus. Ocean Park, there will be a day, and that day may be now, when Jesus' call to believe in him will feel like it's too much. We're letting you go. We're beginning foreclosure. It's stage four cancer. I don't love you anymore. There is no cure. Your little daughter is dead. And like Jairus, Jesus is calling us to trust him in the face of despair, but be encouraged. Be encouraged that despair is commonly the prelude to the grace of God. A grace that is far beyond our wildest imagination. Anything we could ask or understand of Jesus. Notice 38. And they came in the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion. People weeping and wailing loudly. Professional mourners. People who would be paid to be weeping. Any respectable person, one Jewish leader said, it would have two violins and one woman weeping. Even the poorest people. They were, they, they were there. They, this is what they did. And when he, Jesus entered, he said to them, why are you making commotion and weeping? Uh, duh. You're, they're touching you. Duh. She's dead. And Jesus said, the child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. They laughed at him. But Jesus put them out all outside and took the, the child's father and mother. And earlier we see Peter, James, and John accompanied him, only them. And they, those who were with him and went into the, where the child was. Jesus' words 
to the weeper, the, the mourners were ridiculous. These people were professionals. This funeral, this was not their first rodeo. They saw the little girl's white, lifeless body on the pyre. They touched her cold hands. Any fool in their right mind could see that this little girl was dead. You see, but the problem was their perspective was limited by what their eyes could see and what their hands could touch and what their minds could understand. It's very simple. Dead people don't rise up like they've been sleeping. So therefore, Jairus stood another crossroad. Would he mock Jesus with the sinners or would he trust Jesus with the saints? And by God's grace, he chose to trust Jesus even when the evidence told them, him that Jesus was ridiculous. Verse 41, taking her by the hand, he said to Talitha Kumi, which means in Aramaic, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately, just like the bleeding of the woman, immediately the little girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. Same Greek word that talks about the disciples earlier. Talks about the people. We've never heard somebody teach like this. Jesus uttered no magical incantations. He takes the little girl by the hand and he utters uh, a few ordinary Aramaic words, Talitha Kumi, and the lifeless girl was infused with the life of Christ. Why? The power of Jesus' word gives life. It silences storms. It muzzles demons. It cleanses the unclean. It even wakes the dead. In Luke's gospel, uh, he describes it this way, and it says, her spirit returned to her, and she got up once. That, Ocean Park, is the power of Christ. It's a power that you could never predict, you could never foresee, and you can never comprehend. It's a power that is able to reach us when we are lost at the bottom of the ocean of despair. It is a power that defeats the fears that render us hopeless and helpless. It is a power that transcends the limits of our perception and understanding. It is a power that embraces the estranged. It cleanses the unclean, and it remembers the forgotten. That's the power of Jesus. And that, Jesus, is the one we are called to put our faith in. Faith has three implications. Uh, I had, there are a lot, I took lots of notes, and I'm running out of time. I had started with like nine. Uh, but I will will it down to three. We'll see how many I can pack in here. One, faith must be in the right place. Faith must be in the right place. Mark tells us a story of two desperate people. I'm going to leave that up there. Uh, Mark tells us about two desperate people. He was, um, he was a somebody, she was a nobody. He had honor, she had shame. He had, was a man with an honored name, she was an untouchable woman. He had privilege and ample means, she had disadvantage and poverty. You couldn't have two more distinct people who had nothing in common until they trusted in Jesus and he made them both whole. However... Jesus is teaching us about what faith is. And we have to remember, in a world that talks about faith a lot, faith is, genuine biblical faith is not a belief in yourself. Believe in yourselves, trust your heart, keep going, you can do it. 
Biblical faith is not an unwavering belief in your dream. I never lost faith in my dream, in my business, whatever. Biblical faith is not a refusal to quit. Biblical faith is not telling yourself everything will be okay when you're pretty sure it won't be okay. Biblical faith does not count, uh, depend on the intensity of your, of your emotion or your belief or the depth of your confidence. Biblical faith depends on the strength of the object of your faith. I can have the most sincere, the most steadfast, the most unwavering confidence in something that will fail me in the end, even though I believe wholeheartedly in it. But I can also have a weak, wavering, prone to wander, apprehensive faith in something, or as Mark is trying to convince us, or someone who never fails us in the end, and his name is Jesus. Let me give you an example. I got this from Kevin DeYoung, who is a um, Presbyterian pastor in North Carolina. He gives the example, when he grew up in the North, he would go out onto, when the, when the, uh, January, when the pond would freeze, that first time that they would go out, there were people that went out and they did twirls and double, triple luxes and they were playing hockey and they had all the faith in the world in that ice, that they would not be on the bottom of that ice. And then there were those that tiptoed onto the edge of the ice or went on their one foot and came back and they weren't real sure about that ice and they eventually made their way out and they sort of shuffled and they stayed around the edge and they had faith in that ice, even though it was nothing compared to the ice skaters and the hockey players and those people that were driving their cars and fishing on that ice. But in the end, it did not matter about the strength of the hockey players and the ice skaters, nor the timid timidity of those who were creeping out. It did not matter. What mattered is that they had faith in what? The ice. And the ice did not fail them. Brothers and sisters, we are going to have seasons in our life when we're the hockey players and the ice skaters who have all the faith in the world of, of Jesus. And those are sweet times and joyful times. And there are times when we go through troubles and trials and, and tribulations, and we have the ice of those who just scuttle to the edge and really worry. But in the end, our faith is not dependent on our emotions, our steadfastness, our faith and the veracity is on the steadfast love of the Lord, which is new every morning and is reliable and steadfast and faithful and will not fail us. And that's what we call, we say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I need you every hour, oh precious Lord, because I'm scared, I'm fearful, I'm desperate. I don't know what to do. Uh, when I think my faith will fail, we sing what? He will hold me fast. The importance of faith is not in us. It's in Jesus. In large and small, we're called to put our faith in Jesus in times of troubles and times of difficulties. Uh, Louis Burkhoff writes it this way. He said, faith, in a certain faith is a certain conviction wrought by the power of the Holy Spirit as the truth of the gospel and a hearty reliance, a trust in the promises of God in Christ. I know that God loves me. Why? Because the Bible tells me so. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son. The Word became flesh, fully God and fully man in Jesus. 
And he filled the, righteous, fulfilled the righteousness of Christ and he died on behalf of unrighteous people and he gives us his righteousness. This double imputation. I receive the best of Jesus' righteousness and he receives the worst of my sin. And therefore I can stand before the Father. Ocean Park, we can often in our hopelessness pretend that there's nothing wrong. We can self-help, we can self-medicate, we can self-destruct, or we can turn to Jesus. As Jesus has says, do not fear. And we need to be reminded of that because we fear. We fear often. Saving faith happens when a person recognizes their hopelessness in the midst of despair and wholeheartedly trusts in Jesus, who he is and what he has done, and at the cross to save us the promises of the gospel. And it's not just our emotional and physical needs, because we all have those. We have to remember this. I'm not going to get there yet. Don't remember that. We're going to go to the next one. I'm getting ahead of myself. Sorry. Um, here is this. The true light, John 1, John 1, which is showing that the Word came flesh. God alone came in human flesh. The true light which enlightens everyone who's coming to the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And he came to his own, but his world did not receive them. But to as many who did receive him, put their faith in Jesus, who believed in his name that was only can save, gave him the right to become the children of God. This is faith. Knowing our need, knowing our fear, knowing that we're desperate, and turning to Jesus as the only one who can save our souls and provide for us from day to day. Jesus Christ. And when this happens, faith and despair become hope and salvation. Faith not only has to have the right object, but it also is costly. The cost of following Jesus was significant to Jairus and to the woman. The woman had to fight through the crowd and risk being exposed as unclean. Jairus had to overcome the grim reality of his dead daughter and ignore the jeering and laughing of the mourners around him. This woman's faith stepped out in the midst of this intimidating crowd in the, in, despite fear and trembling, and she acknowledged Jesus' power to save her. Jairus' faith proceeds in the face of mocking laughter and refuses to give in to his fear and to his scorn, even though it was very real and he understood why the people were mocking Jesus. But he trusts Jesus' word, his verdict that she's only sleeping and against all evidence to the contrary. Trust your faith, not your feelings. Your feelings will lead you astray always. But I'll tell you this, faith is not blind. Faith is rooted in the promises of God that he has given us in his word. He's the, here's the promises of God. In this life, you will have trouble. Your relationships will fail. Your loved ones will grow sick and die. People will reject us, betray us, and persecute us. Circumstances will not go the way we desire. Our hearts will go weary of doing good. We can't put our faith in those things. We can only trust the promises of God. Jesus tells us, behold, an hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own house and leave me alone, yet I am not alone. The Father is with me. I have said things to you that you may be, have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, fear, despair, trouble. But take heart, 
promises of God. I have overcome the world. We don't simply need a miracle. We need a savior. Our greatest problem is not physical, financial, or relations. Our greatest need is to be freed from the penalty and the power and the presence of sin. You can believe in the word even though of God and the promises of the gospel, even though the world tells you all hope is gone. They mock your faith in cries and they shame you from your shortcomings. Or you can believe in the promises of Jesus that says you, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And when that happens, the fear and despair are transformed into uh, hope and salvation. And finally, and as our time is drawing nigh, has drawn nigh, faith anticipates the final redemption. Jesus came... At the end of the the story, it talks about, Jesus tells the parents, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone because, and we think, that's strange. Wouldn't Jesus want to let everybody know what he's done? The fear is, and the reality was, that Jesus didn't want to be known as a miracle worker. Jesus had come for a reason, and Mark 10, 45 tells us, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and what? Give his life as a ransom for many. Turn to the end of the story, the rest of the story. Revelation chapter 21, it's on page 1041 of your pew Bibles. There is a day, and it was a messianic secret while Jesus was alive. Why? Because the, his resurrection had not happened. He had not gone to the, cry, the uh, cross to pay the penalty of sin, and the resurrection didn't happen because, where he was uh, declared victorious over sin and death because he was awaiting for a day that is to come. Because of the resurrection, that day will come. Verse 21 of Revelation, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a new city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. There will not be the separation. He will not leave us as orphans, Jesus said, but he will come and we will dwell with him. And here's the promise that we're looking for. Because Jesus paid the penalty of our sin and was victorious over death, and he arose, therefore all that have been buried in faith in Christ will arise with glorified bodies. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Faith says right now, this world is not the way it's supposed to be. Jesus is working and renewing, but there will be a day when sin is vanquished and sent into the depths of hell. And God will bring his people together at that banquet table and things will be as they once were in garden, better than we can ever imagine. And we'll ha- uh, those who have been died in faith will be raised up. And we will glory in that day, knowing and trusting the promises of Jesus. Ocean Park, Jesus tells us faith in him transforms our fear and despair into hope and salvation. Do not fear only believe.